Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about race and politics at a very key moment in the presidential campaign. Our guest is Ashante Goular. She is the president of Emerge. That's an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. And before that, she was the deputy director of African-American engagement for the Democratic National Committee. She's got a lot to say about these issues. And she's also has some interesting things to say about Senator Kamala Harris's earliest days as a candidate running for office in San Francisco and how she got started. And now, here's my conversation with Ashante Golar. Ashante Golar, from your home in uh, Virginia to mine in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Um, so as we're recording this, the president is in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yes, he is. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> where police there shot Jacob Blake, uh, an unarmed black man, seven times in the back in front of his kids uh, more than a week ago. Trump has yet to say Blake's name out loud in public, but he has defended Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old white man charged with shooting two people in the middle of the street in Kenosha during the, during the demonstrations in honor of uh, Jacob. Governor of Wisconsin doesn't want President Trump there. The mayor of Kenosha doesn't want Trump there. What is the effect? of the president being there today. I mean, let's be honest about why he's really going there. It's just going to shore up his base for him to continue this dangerous messaging on law and order. And we shouldn't be surprised that he's continuing to fan the flames. We saw this early on with Charleston and how he said those were very fine people. And it's just continued since then. We're obviously going through a very tough time in this country. I actually like to say that we're in the middle of two pandemics, a health pandemic and a racial injustice pandemic. And Trump is not providing us leadership on either. There's still no plan and path forward for COVID. And he is not helping at all with healing racial divisions in this country. So he is once again using Kenosha as an opportunity to fuel racism to get his people excited. And when his people become excited, we know they become more dangerous. And that is another part of what has happened in Kenosha. It is the fact that Jacob Blake got shot seven times in the back, you know, for going to his car. Yet Kyle Rittenhouse was literally able to cross state lines, kill two people, injure one, and go home after that. It is just another glaring example of how there are two justice systems in this country, and it does not favor Black, Brown, and Indigenous people in America. And yet the way this is explained, if you will, by the Republicans, we saw it during the Republican National Convention last week, is they talk about the suburbs and how they're being threatened. We heard uh, Patty McCloskey, the St. Louis woman who was charged with a felony along with her husband, when they pointed guns at the... Uh, Black Lives Matter protesters outside their home, she said Democrats, quote, want to abolish the suburbs altogether, unquote. On Monday on Fox, uh, when President uh, Trump was uh, in an interview with Laura Ingram, he said Democrats are going to bring low income to uh, housing to the suburbs. He said, quote, you know who's going to be in charge of it? Cory Booker. Now, end quote. Now, we know why he's saying Cory Booker. Cory Booker, first of all, not going to leave a Senate seat, which he's running for right now, to, to run for HUD. 
why does what, what explain to us to explain what is going on here when he talks about and when the Republicans talk about the suburbs and Cory Booker leading low income housing there? It's I, I, I'm not a dog, but I'm not even I'm hearing a little dog whistle here. It's not even <laughs> you knew exactly what I was about to say. This is some straight up dog whistling. Shoot, this is dog hollering that he is doing. And the whole thing when he said Cory Booker's coming to the suburbs, I think there's a lot of suburban women who would like Cory Booker to come to their neighborhood. So I'm still trying to figure out, is that really a bad thing? But yet again, in Trump's America, suburban equals white. He is talking about white people. And the fact is there are plenty of people of color that live in the suburbs. But again, he does not have that mentality. It is just, again, saying to his base, look at me, I'm keeping your neighborhood safe. I'm keeping your quality of living up. No income, low income housing. You're not going to have to do your white flight again because you've done it before. So- Yet again, that's that's exactly what it is. It's the dog whistling. It's the dog hollering. And it's also just this narrative that he has about only I can keep you safe because things have gotten so bad. Dude, you're the president, homie. Like you've caused all of this. And it's something that's been irking me so much, Joe, where he's just all like, Biden's America is going to be dangerous. It's going to be awful. You, you are the president right now and things are awful. You have not made it better. So stop trying to paint this as if Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to destroy this country. You are the one who has destroyed it. You have not made us stronger. You have made us weaker in so many ways. Right. And and, and the whole thing about rising crime, is, it's not even, I mean, crime is, I was talking to criminologists for something I'm doing in tomorrow's Chronicle, and uh, crime rates are basically where they are in 1964 at this point. I mean, yes, there are hotspots around the country, but the crime rates have been going down and down, and, and yet he's still playing that same tune. What The other thing I want to ask you about was, okay, you watched the Republican National Convention last week, I'm sure. Yes, Correct. with some dark liquor, yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to get through it. <laughs> whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And um, I, I think there were almost, there was more than a dozen uh, uh, black folks speaking at the convention, which is almost, I mean, literally almost as many delegates as there are to the Republican National Convention. There's not more than 20 or so. The, what's the point of this? Is this? Was this to peel off black votes, suppress the vote? Or is it to give sort of white people permission to vote for Trump? What, what, why? If a lot of people have this question, like, whoa, what's what's going on here? You know, first of all, it it was cover. That's what it was. There are so many people who do want to vote for Donald Trump, and they don't want to be perceived as racist, called racist. But when they see all of these black people, in in their mind, that's a lot of black people you know, at the Republican National Convention saying that Trump is great, Trump has done this, and especially around criminal justice reform, I knew early on this is where he could be really dangerous when it came to the Black community, is pardoning lots of Black people with the First Step Act, using it as his lever to really get into the community. That's why we heard a lot of that. It's what it was. It's so white people who do want to vote for Trump can say, well, he's clearly not racist because look at these people who work in his administration. I know Jerron Smith. Personally, 
I love him. But he also knows, dude, I don't agree with you working in the White House. I don't agree with those stances. I think Jerron's a great guy. His wife is wonderful. But again, it is truly not reflective of how his administration has truly supported Black people at all. And to tie it to the fact that he chose criminal justice reform, it plays into that mindset that all Black people are criminals. So when you're saying, I had to pardon this Black person, look at what I'm doing with the First Step Act, it's really feeding a narrative. It is feeding that narrative that we are dangerous people who can't live in society, so I'm the great guy for focusing on criminal justice reform to help make their lives better. And White it, savior. White savior complex. White savior right. complex. And it absolutely sickens me. And there's the other part where, you know, <laughs> you, I saw tweets where people would be like, just be like you know, the senator from South Carolina, look at what his family did, how they went from poverty to the Senate and just one generation. Why can't all- Congress, as, as Tim Scott said. Yes. Tim Scott. So yeah. is he, is he senator or is he Congress? He's senator. senator. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> making sure I'm saying that right. Yeah, yeah. So the senator from South Carolina and, you know, the whole, you need to be like him. If he can do it, you can do it. But in the next breath, when white people who aren't doing so well, you know, want to say, oh my gosh, I'm not doing well. Like what's going on in this country? Well, look at all the black people. Look at affirmative action. They're taking your spot. They're taking your jobs. Like which one is it? We either need to do well or we're making it harder for white people. And for me, that is just the hypocrisy of a lot of Republicans when it comes to the Black community. They want to trot out Black people who are doing well. And of course, I always want everyone in my community to to do well, Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. also using it as a wedge issue for white people who aren't doing well to say, well, you're not doing well because of all of these Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. The the first step uh, law on, on its own, what do you think of that? I mean, with political considerations aside. Here's, I honestly, for me, Ashanti speaking, like criminal justice reform, it is an issue that I really care about. It's important to me. When I worked at the Department of Labor under Secretary Solis, I did a lot of work with our employment training administration, and they focused on banning the box. So particularly with federal Ex- explain Explain what that is to the so, listeners who may not be familiar with that concept. So when we're talking about banning the box, basically, a lot, so think back to when you've applied for a job, if you had to fill out a form and you see that box where you have to check, have you been arrested? Do you have a criminal record? You know, have you ever been convicted of a fel- felony? That actually is used a lot of times to not give people jobs. And if we want to end recidivism, which is people returning to prison, we know that people need jobs. So we worked on this at the Department of Labor to really ban the box, especially around federal contractors. And this is when I really started, you know, getting more educated on the criminal justice system. And then over the years, it's just been a passion, not a passion project, but it's something that 
I really work on and I'm involved in groups, bipartisan groups that focus on this because criminal justice reform really should be a bipartisan issue. So with the First Step Act, I'm absolutely glad that they did it. They got it accomplished. I'm not going to lie. That started in the Senate with, oh my gosh, Cory Booker, look at that. He was the (laughs) one who has been really pushing this. You know, they took credit for it. But I still think it could have gone further, especially with banning the box. So Mm. when they were talking about doing the Second Step Act, that was something that I made very clear that it needed to do. You need to Mm. really make sure that when people are leaving the prison system, that they do have jobs. And there was a tweet the other day that went viral with a man who had just been released from prison. And he said, 10 days after being released from prison, I got a job. And that's the way that it should be. Like Mm -hmm. his past should not impact his future. And that's what we need more of in this country is making sure that our fellow Americans who are returning to public life, being everyday citizens, still have the same opportunity to get jobs as the rest of us. So in response to all this fear mongering by the president and other Republicans, what should the Democratic response be? How do you push back on this? And, and Joe Biden started to the other day. What, 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 needs, what else needs to be done? I think what Vice President Biden did yesterday was the perfect response to remind Donald Trump that you are president right now. You are the one who is instigating all of this fear. You're the one who is claiming that these are great people, that they should protect their homes, that they should take up arms, keep them out of the suburbs. We need to make it very clear that we did not see this rise in hate until he became president. This hate has always existed in this country. We need to be clear on that. But he gave everyone the okay to just go ahead and wild out, as I like to say. I remember the day after he was elected, someone shared a photo of KKK members in broad daylight dancing around in their full hoods, their full outfits, waving Trump signs and banners. That's how happy they were because Mm -hmm. they knew what was coming is that they finally had a president who was going to make it fine for them to be racist, openly racist. I mean, I'm surprised they had their hoods on. You might as well have taken them off because Mm. that's what we've seen since he's become president. People are just really showing that they want to ensure that this is a country that remains focused on white supremacy. I just, you know, I'm thinking about stories that I heard from friends and colleagues the day after Trump was elected with how people talked to them, things that they said. You know, one woman literally said to my mom, because she she's a staunch Republican, she knows that I work in democratic politics and said, I hope Shawnee knows it's a new day in America now. Mm. That's literally what she said. Mm. So this is the mindset that a lot of people have had since he got elected, and he's continued to embolden them. And we just, as Democrats, as Vice President Biden, Senator Harris, they need to continue to push back against the narrative and let people know, no, this is not 
who we are as a country is should not be who we are as a country and we will lead and govern differently. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Ashante Golar right after this short break. And now, here's more of my conversation with Ashante Golar. Let's talk about Senator Harris for a minute. Um, you know, for those of us who've seen her go here in uh, the Bay Area from in, in eight, pretty much 18 years from being an assistant district attorney to, you know, possibly the White House as vice president. Um, but one of the first calls she made before she decided to run for uh, district attorney here in San Francisco was to uh, your predecessor, mm-hmm. Andrew Duce Steele, at the the organization that you are now ahead of, <laughs> yes. uh, Emerge, here in San Francisco. Can you walk people through what that what happened when she she called uh, uh or she didn't call it she she knew andrea and they were friends and and uh, and walk us through that that conversation that they had yes so we actually like to say that senator harris's story really is the story of emerge she's what we like to see at emerge andrea and several other women supported kamala during her first race as da and when they were helping her out, they realized that there was no place for women to go to get training on how to run for office. At Emerge, I say we demystify the process of running for office. And they wanted to see more women in office in San Francisco, in California, more women like Kamala. And she was an inspiration for them to start Emerge. And we started in 2002 with Emerge California, our first affiliate. In 2005, Emerge America was created to replicate the program across the country because it became so successful. And now we're in 27 states and we trained over 4,000 women to run for office. We currently have almost 800 serving in office and over 700 that are running this year. So it's really great to know that Senator Harris was an inspiration for the work that we do today. And we were very excited when the news came out that Vice President Biden has selected her because her trajectory is just inspiring to women to go from DA to attorney general to a senator to now be the first Black and Indian woman on a major party ticket as a vice presidential candidate. That's what we want to see. That should be the path for women. And I think she's a great example of how to do that and how to be effective. What is the uh, effect what effect has that had? I know it's only been you know a few weeks now on on uh, recruiting uh, for for uh, your organization. And what is it uh, and of having her on the ticket, having her this such a, a visible role model of of how it can be? So definitely seeing an increased interest in women who want to run for office. And this really didn't surprise me. We saw this after 2016 with Secretary Clinton. I really knew that if she won, if she lost, there was going to be a huge impact on women wanting to run for office, to enter public service. And we saw that. We had a huge increase at Emerge post-2016. Several of our affiliates like doubled the size of their class or they ran multiple programs. And I think we're going to see the same thing with Senator Harris. It's really going to inspire a lot more women to want to run for office, knowing that we are getting closer and closer to cracking 
that highest glass ceiling. And just with so many panels that I've done in the few weeks since she was announced, a lot of the questions I've seen in the chat box are, where do I start when it comes to running for office? What are things that I need to think about when it comes to running for office? So women are definitely getting energized and excited to see Senator Harris in that role. And it's all, and those are the very questions she had when she talked to Andrea. Yes. Yes. 20 20 years. Like what, what do I do? I want to, I want to run. You know, just, they had to get her bio together. They had to put all her contacts at that time in a Palm pilot. So they were all organized. (laughs) Yes. You know, they were ordering her signs and her banners and they were setting them up outside of the store so she can meet and greet people. These are all things that go into campaigning that a lot of people don't think about. And when I'm doing trainings, I tell that story a lot. And I remind the women that everyone starts somewhere. It's so easy to see Senator Harris, Speaker Pelosi, all of these amazing women, but you have to realize that they too one day woke up and decided that they were going to do it. They wanted to run for office and had to figure it out. Barbara Lee has uh, has told us uh, uh, my my congresswoman has love told her. Us on this, I just uh, had on her this, on my podcast. <laughs> I I saw that. I saw that. Uh, she has said uh, has told us that it's three times as hard for her to raise money oh, yeah. um, as as a woman of color. What are some of the the challenges still facing uh, women of color who want to run for office that that don't face others? Those barriers are very w- real. Um, higher heights. They do a report almost every year with the Center for American Women in Politics. And they talk about how Black women in politics are advancing. But despite that, there's still the barriers. The first barrier is that people do not see Black women as viable or electable candidates. And I personally don't like those words, but you know, those are the words in the field that I work in where they don't think that they can immediately win. They hear the things such as, are you qualified to really run for this seat? Do you think you can actually represent this district? Will people vote for you? Things that white men never have to hear. There's also the barrier that if a black, brown, indigenous woman wants to run in a district that is predominantly white, people say to her, well, you can't win. This this isn't your district. These people don't look like you. But we never hear that when white candidates run in districts that are majority people of color. So there's also that bias that exists as well, this truly antiquated notion that people of color can only represent other people of color. And I love when we see Black, Brown, Indigenous women breaking that down because of that notion of the lack of viability, lack of electability, that does impact fundraising. It is very hard for first-time Black women candidates to raise money, even like a Congresswoman Barbara Lee, when you've even been in for a while, you may not raise as much money as some of your white women colleagues. The majority of the money that they raise is due to low-dollar donations, which is why that's something I talk about a lot, reminding people how their dollars $15, $50 a month can add up to really help candidates win their race. So those are kind of the key barriers that 
black women have to face just when they're thinking about running, when they're starting to run. And then you have to add in just the racism, the sexism, the misogyny that they're going to have to face on the campaign trail. When we're talking to our black women candidates who may have, you know, areas in their district that are predominantly white, we have to let them know you should actually call the police department and let them know that you're going to be canvassing that neighborhood. So people won't call the cops on you because that has happened to several of our alums. We let them know, make sure that if you're even sending your volunteers out into these neighborhoods, that they're wearing your shirts, that is very visible what they're doing. And you're still calling the police to let people know that I'm going to be canvassing in this neighborhood. My volunteers are going to be canvassing in this neighborhood with me. Those are things that white candidates never have to think about. They are welcome everywhere that they go. You have to deal with people questioning your looks, particularly with black women and their hair. It's something that we see from the local level all the way up to Congress. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, when she first ran, she talked about how there was the debate with her consultants over if she should change her hairstyle from her Senegalese twists to something that would make people feel that she was more approachable, you know, basically more mainstream, having straight hair. Mm. is what we're told all the time. And even Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor and rocking her natural hair, a lot of people are just like, oh my gosh, but look at her hair. That's something we have to talk to our candidates about all the time. And the fact is we tell them you have to be authentically you. You have to be comfortable when you're knocking those doors, when you're at that fundraiser, when you're giving that speech. Because if you're not, you're going to be completely uncomfortable. And for me, I really think about the message that that sends when they are authentic to other Black women who are running for office, when they see that these women are getting elected, rocking their natural hair, but also to younger women who may just be entering college or entering the workforce, and you still get those same types of statements, like questions about why you're wearing your hair. It isn't something that's just in the political world. This is something that is just a part of Black women's existence. So to be able to see them being authentic in that way is important. I mean, for me, I wear my hair in Senegalese twists. So it was really great for me to see when Ayana got elected to Congress wearing her Senegalese twists, because I could say that I actually wear my hair like a Congresswoman. So you Mm. can't tell me that there's anything wrong with the way that I wear my hair. And like, I'm older, I'm established in my career, but it was was really big for me to see someone with a hairstyle like me walking the halls of Congress. Let's uh, let's talk about voting for a couple of minutes. In, in one of your uh, in your previous life, you were director, uh, deputy director of African American engagement for the DNC. We got sixty days or so to vote. What's the best message right now? And we and we're going to be voting in in uh, you know uh, unprecedented ways, of course. Uh, a lot of uh, mail in voting. What's the best, what are your biggest concerns about reaching young voters and communities of color in the next 60 days during this pandemic and, and, and uh, your concerns and how, how should, uh, what, what should be doing, what should folks be doing now that they don't, wouldn't ordinarily might be doing? 
Well, I think the biggest message is everything is on the ballot. I know that we're concentrating on the presidency, but it's those down ballot races, it's ballot measures. We need to realize so much is at stake this election cycle. Really making sure that people are educating themselves around what is happening with early voting, absentee voting in their state. We know there has been so many changes changes and shifts since the pandemic. And I can really see them playing games, particularly in communities of color with mm-hmm. Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. We know that we're about to enter another presidential election cycle without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. That is absolutely something that concerns me as well. So making sure that people also know What type of ID do you need to have when you're voting? With the pandemic, we saw so many polling places being closed and condensed. That's something that we also need to plan for. I think going back to Georgia and Stacey Abrams, when she requested her absentee ballot in Georgia, her return envelope was sealed shut. So she couldn't even, (laughs) she couldn't even return it. But she said she was able to go to her polling place on election day and easily vote because there wasn't a long line. But that wasn't the case for other people who had to stay in long lines forever. So that's a concern as well, how they're just really going to make it super inconvenient for people to vote. Is there a sort of a one-stop shopping of a place that people can go to learn, you know, uh, all of these things? What, what are you advising folks? Where, where do you folks advise folks to go? So definitely go to IWillVote.com, which is the DNC's website, the Democratic National Committee's website. And when we all vote, which is my forever first lady, Michelle Obama, you know, that is her organization and they've been doing really great things, especially around educating young people. Uh, last night, 1.1 million of us got together on Instagram for the verses with Brandy versus Monica, which was a lot of fun. And when we all vote was a part of that. And Senator Harris popped in. And I was so excited because I'm like, yes, like this is what you need to be doing. You had predominantly 1.1 million black women who were watching that and they got to see Senator Harris. They got to hear about the importance of voting. I saw when Joe Biden popped in with a little emoji wave. So I'm like, even Joe's up in here. So (laughs) it's really, even during this time, meeting people where they are. And we know right now, a lot of people are on social media because we can't get out in public the way that we used to. And a lot of people still aren't comfortable going out into public, even if they can for certain things. And that's going to be very crucial for young people, like finding to those issues that they care about. I think about all of the young people who graduated high school and were excited about going to college and how they're not going to have that freshman year experience because so many colleges now are remote and how COVID has taken that away from them. Talking about that, talking about the environment, an issue that is really important to young people. So when it comes to our younger Americans, really making sure that you're honing in on what they care about and 
letting them know how you will make things better for them in the future. Because hearing from so many young people right now, they, they can't see how things get better. Mm. So how, in which that is just so sad that they don't see how this world is going to be better for them, how this world will be better for their children. You have to talk to them about that. It's a really scary time for everyone, but I especially think for these young people who thought the beginning of this year that they are going to have this great, amazing life ahead of them, and now they don't know what that future looks like. Uh, and it, it is it is sad for for that for that generation. Okay, before before I let you go, uh, you, you alluded to your podcast earlier, Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Who is uh, the latest? Uh, give us uh, the who's upcoming and who's the latest episode. Give this is the free plug time of the uh, of my podcast. <laughs> Yeah, so for the Brown Girls Guide right now, we are doing a special season called Freedom Summer, where we're highlighting everything that has been happening over the past few weeks with the protests across the country. And I really wanted to call it that because, you know, Freedom Summer, it does allude to the 1960s and the voter registration drives that happened in Mississippi and across the South to get Black people registered to vote, but also highlighting all of the racial unrest during that time. And I kind of felt like we had another Freedom Summer during the past few weeks with the protest. And I wanted to highlight the Black women who are at the forefront of this. I mentioned we had on Congresswoman Barbara Lee. I wanted to have her on because she started off as a Black Panther, which fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk to her about getting her start with the Black Panthers and how that led her to Congress. We just had on Deatra Jackson from Black Youth Project 100, which has really been mobilizing young people across the country to get politically and civically engaged. And they've been at the forefront of a lot of these protests. So again, talking about young people, I wanted to hear what was on their mind, you know, to be seeing all of this play out in their cities, sometimes right in their neighborhoods, and what they wanted to see for the future. And we're going to end with having Brittany Packett, who's also going to talk to us about where do we go from here? What are some of the next steps? That reminds me, one one thing I forgot to ask you that I wanted to ask you is, is that what do you say when people uh, we hear a lot of Democrats say, oh, my God, these these demonstrations, it's just going to that's just good for Trump. And even even Kellyanne Conway said that there's more demonstrations. It's good for Trump because it plays into his whole law and order thing. What what do you say to folks who would say that? First of all, you're many of them, of course, are convoluting uh, demonstrations and 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 violence. But what what do you say to, to folks? And these are particularly uh, particularly white folks saying this. Uh, their concerns. Protest is a part of the history of this country, going back to the Boston Tea Party. This is how we get change. The people who don't like the protests, who have never liked the protests, is because they're not comfortable with the change. They're not excited about what the change will mean for this country really what the change will mean for them. So of course, they're not happy with these protests. But at the end of the day, this is how we raise awareness. This is how we spark change. What's happening with the NBA players right now, 
that is absolutely a perfect example of how you use your influence and how you use your power. And I really just have to shout out the WNBA because Mm -hmm. those women, they were the ones who started it. Then the NBA players followed and they're kind of getting the majority of the attention. But I have to highlight that once again, it was black women who started leading this movement. And when you look at these protests, it's not all black people. You see- No, very multiracial. It is so multiracial. Yes. Because that is also where we're at as a country. We are a multiracial country. And a lot of these people, they don't want to recognize that either. They don't want to recognize the fact that people who look like them, who may be the same as them with- economic status, social status, will still get out there in March and want to make sure that there's fairness and equality in this country. So, you know, anything that Trump can use to get his base excited, he's going to use, including the protests. But I'm, I'm excited about the protests because it really means that we're not going to go down without a fight. He is trying to move us to an authoritative fascist system And we're not taking it lying down. And that's exactly how it should be. Ashante, it's great to see you again. We're we're doing this on videos. I haven't done a lot of these on video. It's good to see. And I I must compliment your background. You must get high points on Room Raider. I have not Uh, been on Room Raider. I I got my ass kicked on Room Raider. I did it from the newsroom. I got just, 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 he killed me. I don't even know who it is. Yeah. Thank Um, you. I just actually redecorated (laughs) it. It's very, it's very nice. And thank you for more more than that. Thank you for being on It's All Political. And I hope to see you in person again soon. Oh, thank you, Joe, again for having me and everything that you do. Appreciate you. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And I hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Ashante for being here today. And I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember... Whether you're hearing a dog whistle or a dog holler, it's all political.